You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. John DeYard and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And today I have a special guest, Dr. Timothy McCall, who's written a brilliant book about his personal journey using Ayurveda and Western medicine to cure his cancer. And the book, uh, which is out as a Kindle book now and will be released uh, on May 2nd of this year, the book is called Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer. I just finished reading it. It's a must read. It's an incredible journey. And we're gonna to get to talk to the author directly and share his incredible story. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. McCall. Timothy McCall is a board certified internist, medical editor of Yoga Journal, and author of best-selling Yoga as Medicine. I think that's how I got to meet Timothy originally. A uh, great book. Uh, um, his first book, Examining Your Doctor, A Patient's Guide to Avoiding Harmful Medical Care. He's always been on the cutting edge of medicine for many, many years. He serves on the editorial board of the International Journal of Yoga Therapy and co-edited the 2016 medical textbook, The Principles and Practice of Yoga in Healthcare. Um, his latest book, Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer. We're gonna talk about that today. Timothy is the founder and director of the Yoga as Medicine seminars and teaching training trainings. He lives in Burlington, Vermont, what a beautiful place to live, and lectures and teachers around the world. Timothy, so great to have you here. Thank you so much. What an incredible journey. Everyone, um, uh, this is an exciting read, and I encourage you all to pick up this book because it, particularly if you're interested in, in Ayurveda and Western medicine and the combination of the two. I was fortunate enough when I came back from India in 1986 to co-direct Deepak Chopra Center in Massachusetts, which was really a cancer center. We had like six Ayurvedic centers around the country at that time, and all our really terminally ill cancer patients came to us there. So I had a, a my first eight years of Ayurvedic practice were kind of balancing and juggling Western medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. And, and, uh, and uh, I think what, what Timothy did here to cure himself of his cancer um, was sort of kind of mimics and, and echoes what I experienced in my practice years ago was that, that there isn't, you know, Western medicine isn't bad and it can save your life, um, but it isn't complete per se. And, I, and what Timothy did was he checked every single box out there of alternative Ayurvedic practice to, to cure this. I mean, he left no stone unturned. And I was just so fascinated by reading what you did and how many things you did and how many stones you uncovered to get this job done. And congratulations, so great to see you here in the flesh. Thank you for writing this book and, and thank you for discovering and, you know, and unveiling a lot of these secrets that I think a lot of people will benefit from. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's my great pleasure. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, you know, there's so much to say here, but I think I want to just, you know, give you the floor and, and tell us, tell us your story. And, and what do you, what do you want to tell us from this book? What's your main message? I mean, a, a lot of details I know we're going to get into, but what's the, the, the big takeaway for folks? Well, as you said, I mean, I trained in internal medicine, practiced conventional medicine for 12 years in the Boston area. And I believe that the tools of conventional medicine can be extremely useful 
We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater when we go for holistic treatments. We want to say that sometimes certain reductionist tools like, like surgery and drug therapy are helpful and we shouldn't rule those out. So I wanted to use an integrative approach. I also wanted to go to a place that was going to be state-of-the-art Western medicine. And what that meant in my case was going to a place that was state-of-the-art Western medicine and clueless about everything else. So anything else I wanted to do, yoga, Ayurveda, body work, herbal treatment, uh, dietary stuff, psychological and spiritual work, all those aspects that go into the best holistic care. I had to figure that set stuff out for myself and bring it to the care I got with physicians who were excellent and at best agnostic to what I was doing. <laughs> and sometimes less than that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, and the thing was, it was a journey of discovery for me. I had to figure it out as I went along. And while I love to have good scientific data that can back up my decisions, the reality is when you've got cancer, you've got to make decisions now. And you don't have time to wait for all the data to go in. So I looked for what data was available. In some cases, as with fasting, almost all that data came from animals. But that was good enough to convince me I ought to do it. So, for example, I fasted for a 72-hour period around each chemotherapy infusion, which allowed me on the most, what they call emetogenic in medicine, which we could say pucogenic might be a, a less nice way of saying that, um, the worst chemotherapy drug known for that. I had zero nausea and vomiting, hmm. you know, during my whole treatment. And, uh, you know, so a number of the things I really worked, but I had to try some things, see what worked, see what didn't work, adapt, new side effects to the treatments came. How am I going to address that? And, you know, when I went through it, I was just trying to get through it and survive. And I didn't have any notion that it was going to write a book. But when I got to the end, I felt, oh, my God. I learned so much on this journey. I have to write about it. Yeah. And, and I thought for people to see how a truly holistically minded physician would look at the decisions he had to make and figure out what to do, like that process kind of opening up my thinking process along the way, what data I just discovered and how that influenced me, I thought that would be interesting to me. So that's, that's, that's what I did. You know, um, you had a lot, of, um, a lot of hurdles that I didn't realize or know. I mean, you were diagnosed with Lyme disease three times, you know, ankylosing spondylitis, you know, trauma uh, as a young child falling out of a window, I think it was, um, a traumatic birth, sort of a crazy dad, um, which which uh, I like to talk about, maybe not right now, but I want to get into that, you know, kind of the emotional uh, unraveling and pulling those emotional strings, those old protective patterns of behavior you had as a kid. I think that's all really, really important. But I was really struck by how did you write a book, many books about yoga, 
having ankylosing spondylitis, I mean, that was just, you know, in addition to your whole story, I was like, because that means that they call it bamboo spine, if you don't know, it means your spine starts to stiffen up. And here, Timothy has written books, he's one of the leaders in the yoga community, and I, I just want you to just, if you wouldn't mind, just how, that's just such a crazy dichotomy, you know? Well, you know, and, and, and my ankylosing, which of course means fusion of joints, right. my ankylosing actually turned out to not be the autoimmune condition, ankylosing spondylitis. But when I fell out of that second story window, I was 11 years old. I was diagnosed as having a wrist that was fractured in six places, which was casted. I'm pretty sure in retrospect that I had multiple spinal fractures that the doctors missed. And that in order to protect me, the body fused them together to kind of protect the spinal cord. And so now what I knew when I came to yoga was that I was what I call a remedial yoga student. Yeah. Now, there, there's, there's a pose I sometimes joke about that I call bad dog, which is like stiff guy, downward facing dog pose. Like I had a bad dog and I had like bad everything else poses because I basically couldn't really bend forward, backwards or twist to the side, you know? So, so and it was so interesting that I fell in love with yoga because I was always in terms of like looking from the outside anyway, the worst yoga student in the room, every class I ever attended, but somehow it just spoke to me and I stuck with it even so. And of course, it's really helped me. Now, you know, you're not going to unfuse fuse bones, fuse joints, but I've been able to make tremendous changes. When I started yoga, my head was at least six inches in front of my spine. I had that C-shaped slump in my back. And, you know, if you really have a skilled eye, you can still see that I have a little hyperkyphosis in my mid-thoracic spine. But basically, I'm pretty upright. My head is pretty much poised on my spine. It's it's way different, and, and yoga, and also a lot of body work, huge difference. And of course, the Ayurveda has, has been part of it. You know, I had, uh, you know, Kadubasti, which is the, the, the moat of flour put on my back with the hot oil put in it. Usually that's done in the lower back for back pain, but because my fractures were higher, they moved the moat up higher, and they did it in my upper back. Helped tremendously in bringing it. Beautiful. I think, you know, just that point alone, that takeaway, how many people who are generally stiff, maybe men, more muscular, more stiff, not great at yoga, they don't do yoga. I think I, I was at a SS Park yoga conference one year and I, I think I body typed 100 people in the room and there were like 98 vata pitta body types, really thin, flexible types. And there were two kapha types in the room who were stiff, right? So we do the things that we're generally good at. You weren't that person. You were the one who said, I'm stiff, I need this, I need to work through it. And probably uh, it may have been one of the pieces that, that saved your life. And I, so, so I think, you know, how valuable it is. And that was my point back then it was like, hey guys, wake up. If you're not good at something and good at flexibility, don't go pump more iron and get bigger and stiffer. You gotta do what you're not good at. And the people who are super flexible, they overuse and they, over, they, they create, you know, ligament laxity and problems there as well. But you also said, back to the cancer part, I think there was a definite connection between you thinking that that trauma to your neck has something to do with the, the, the throat cancer that you had. Is, is that accurate? Did I pick that well, up or that well, there was a know, trauma you know, there? One of the things I unfolded in my research 
is yeah. that metastases tend to follow fascial planes in the body. And, and of course, in yoga and in certain body works like the myofascial release, MFR, that I did, a focus on the fascia is huge. And, and a focus on fascia is also huge in the way I teach yoga. Uh, so my metastases in my neck, so I had a primary tonsil cancer that metastasized to the opposite side of the neck. That almost never happens. My doctors had no clue why that happened. But I knew from practicing yoga that the prana doesn't flow through the right side of my neck and the right side of my chest. I could feel it. And so I felt like even though my doctors didn't know, I felt like I had a pretty good idea why the metastases went there because that's where the fascia was disrupted. And... Uh, I decided, by the way, not to mention this to my physicians because I figured they wouldn't know what the heck to make of what I was even saying. So, you know, choose your battles, and I chose not to fight that one. So, so you're making the case that old myofascial trauma can manifest itself down the road as, you know, health concerns way down the road and how critical is important, yoga being one of those tools, to really keep an eye on those don't sweep those underlying stiff areas under the rug, is what you're saying. Well, you know, there was a study I cited in the book by Helene Langevin from Harvard Medical School, who's a researcher. I think she's now actually become the director of the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Medicine um, at the NIH. And she did studies, and she's been very interested in acupuncture and fascia for years. She did a study where they took mice, and they could, found that they could do this position that kind of looks like downward-facing dog. I call it in the book, downward-facing mouse. And, but it stretched the whole torso. So they injected cancer cells in their axillary armpit fat pads. And they had, had half the mice doing the stretch for 10 minutes a day, half the mice just the controls. And at the end of... I think it was an eight-week study, or maybe it was a four-week study, but at the end of the study, the group that stretched had tumors that were half the size of the, of the group that didn't stretch. So, clear, you know, it didn't prevent it from happening, but it clearly made a difference. Do you, do you tie that, that myofascial pumping and movement of yoga to lymphatic flow and lymphatic drainage? Absolutely. I mean... Everything, lymph, nerve, nerves, blood vessels, they all flow through the fascia. You know, in Western medicine, they don't see any connection between carpal tunnel syndrome and muscle tone. And yet, when I work with people with carpal tunnel syndrome, they often have forearms that look like Popeye. Yeah. You know, and, and they're hard as a rock. And they say, oh, it's repetitive stress. No, it's actually sustained stress. They're tight 24-7, basically. And part of the treatment is to break that up. High blood pressure, the blood vessels, the arteries, are passing through these fascial planes. And they're maybe potentially getting constricted all along the route, which is going to then tend to increase the blood pressure. And so this idea that doing things systemically through the body to release holding, to let go of adhesions in the fascia, whatever methods you use to get there. And by the way, there was a definite synergy between 
the Ayurvedic massage I did in India and the myofascial release. Now, I go to Kerala and they do Ayurveda there that's more based on Kalari Payatu, the indigenous martial art. And so it's not like the soothing Abhyanga that you get in a lot of places. They kind of kick your butt on the table. They're trying to open up, uh, you know, adhesions. They're working on fashion. They don't think of it that way, but they're totally working on fashion. Yeah, wow. So, um, you know, you got diagnosed with cancer. You did chemo and radiation here. Then you went, no, you went to India first to do Panchakarma to prepare yourself for that, right? right and right. then you came back and did the chemo and radiation. How do you think the, the Panchakarma, uh, and then you did fasting before your treatments, and you did like a whole bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about. But, yeah, yeah. but you know, like, you know, where would you begin and say, okay, you got diagnosed with cancer. What, this is what I did. These are the, this is, this is the procedure or the, or the plan that I would take. I mean, obviously you want to have, this is the whole point of the book is the people to get um, a map of how to navigate this or at least another tool in our toolbox. Well, you know, one of the things I talked about in the book is something I learned in medical school, which is that cancer is potentially life-threatening, but generally it's not an emergency. And many patients have the attitude, I want that thing out of me as soon as possible. I'm not gonna take any time to do research. I'm not gonna take time, just you know, set, schedule the surgery for Monday. Let's just get it out of me. I knew, I knew, you know, and yes, there are sometimes when a tumor is blocking the breathing tube or pushing on a vital structure, you do need to get it out ASAP. But generally, you have the luxury of a little time. Now, as it turned out, I had decided I wanted to get to a state-of-the-art cancer facility, which was out of the state I was living in. My health insurance didn't allow that. So I switched health insurance in late, December, late November after I got diagnosed to another state wasn't going to start till January 1st. So I suddenly found myself with a month I hadn't planned on. And, and I basically a day and a half's notice, I booked a plane ticket to India, went there. And, you know, two days later, I'm on the table and getting the treatments. So and so I figured, what the heck, let's get myself as balanced and rested and centered as I can. So I'd get so I, I went and got these beautiful treatments. And I took a kind of retreat where I basically just did a lot of yoga and meditation and chanting, all the stuff I like to do. And I read like a ridiculous amount of material, everything from crazy alternative, you know, uh, cancer doesn't kill you, chemotherapy kills you books, to uh, which, you know, sometimes it is true, but sometimes actually cancer really does kill you, you know, or can. And, and to, you know, Vincent DeVita, the former director of the National Cancer Institute, who's a hardcore, throw every big Western gun at everything. You know, so I read all the extremes and I tried to just go in with loaded for bear, as much information as I could, so I could make good decisions when the time came. You chose not to do surgery. Yes. Why? Well, they wanted to, in addition to the robotic surgery to remove the tonsil, which I might have agreed to, they wanted to do 
what I started calling a bilateral modified radical neckectomy. They wanted to slice both sides of my neck from top to bottom open and remove all the lymph nodes on both sides of my neck. And they have no data that improves survival, okay? Now, the surgeon, of course, was gung-ho, and he wanted me to do it. And in fact, I had a second opinion, and another surgeon also wanted to do it, although he wanted to do a different surgery. But they both agreed that I should have surgery. But looking at the data, I didn't feel it was going to add. I felt there was, you know, for example, the risk of getting lymphedema in the head and neck, I felt was high after that kind of surgery. In fact, I just got an email from a physical therapist who specializes in lymphedema. And she said to me in that email that 100% of patients treated for head and neck cancer wind up with lymphedema. Now, that's, that's much higher than the rate for breast cancer. And it must be 99% because I didn't get any. And I think it's all the stuff I did that may have prevented that. Yeah, but that's because you didn't get the surgery. You're talking about that not, it was 100% after surgery they got the edema, right? He didn't specify any treatment, you know. Oh, and, wow. And, 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 and surgery is sometimes offered, but many people, the standard treatment these days is actually chemo radiation, which is chemotherapy simultaneous with radiation therapy, which is what I ended up going for. And, you know, I just felt it was overkill. And, you know, the point of my first book, Examining Your Doctor, is that in a way in Western medicine now, when in doubt, or rather, uh, first do no harm, has been transformed into when in doubt, do something. Yeah. And, and, and so, and I just felt like, you know, I'm going to hire, hold you guys to a higher standard of evidence. You know, they, they like to criticize that a lot of holistic remedies don't have evidence. But what unknown to most patients is that most surgeries do not have randomized controlled trials backing up their efficacy. Okay. Surgery is allowed, has been allowed to bypass the requirements of evidence-based medicine. So for example, most lower back surgery, no randomized controlled studies showing those surgeries are more effective than things like yoga therapy. And then and speaking of yoga therapy, there are now more than a dozen randomized, randomized controlled trials that show that yoga is an effective treatment for chronic low back pain and zero for most back surgeries. Hmm. That's yeah. the science. Wow. Science. Incredible. So, so um, surgeons love to do surgery. And we have to go into it being aware of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, and of course they have a financial incentive, but beyond that, they believe in it. In yeah. fact, there was an old study years ago that the wives of gynecologists had the highest rate of hysterectomies of any patient group. And it's not because of money. It's because they believe in it. And so, so they're, they're really trying to get you to do what they believe but I didn't, I wasn't convinced, so I decided against it. And I, I very happy I made the decision. Here's the thing. The local control of, 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 head, of, of the kind of cancer I had, which is an HPV-related oral cancer, is very good with radiation therapy. Okay. What's going to kill you is distant metastases. Okay. And surgery 
doesn't do anything for distant metastases. If you have hidden micrometastases, that's the, really the thing you need to wonder. The only thing they do that might touch that is chemotherapy. But chemotherapy in head and neck cancer is not used to be cured. It's used to supplement radiation therapy, which is viewed as the primary modality. They get slightly better numbers, about 10% higher response rate when they add chemotherapy to the radiation. So we know that the chemo and the radiation did so much for you in terms of you know taking care of the cancer and hopefully and do you feel like the Ayurvedic part was the part that is preventing the metastasis and making the whole journey more effective with less side effects? Is that um, I is mean, that I, 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 I definitely think it, it has definitely helped with side effects. And I suspect it probably, by having me balanced, has, 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 has improved my likelihood for long-term health. I'll tell you this. Due to my childhood trauma and other things that happened in my life, I have had a vata derangement that I believe started in utero. Okay, my mother had a very traumatic pregnancy with me. I wound up, uh, you know, scared and in an incubator for the first month of my life. Went home to a less than ideal home situation, and 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 I think had they been used at that time, I would have been placed on drugs for ADHD, ADHD as a kid. Okay, with all, and, and then no matter what I did, all the many years of Ayurvedic treatment, all the stuff I've done, all the hundreds, if not thousands of home massages I've done with oil over the years, my vata was, has still been in balance consistently. And about nine months after I finished my cancer treatment, two weeks after I arrived for my last trip to Kerala, India, my vata came balanced on pulse for the first time in my life. And it's now more than one year later, and it stayed balanced the whole time. No subdosha spikes, nothing. Smooth and balanced for one year straight. And I think all the stuff I did, which very much included Ayurveda, has been a big part of that. And then, of course, the thing with holistic remedies, like what I did, I did 20 things. How do I know which ones helped me? I mean, I kept my feeling, and I definitely feel like Ayurveda was, but can I isolate it from the other things I do? Absolutely not. You know, the other thing I did was I gave up all added sugars. And I actually think that that has made a huge difference. I didn't, I'm not, not doing ketogenic diet, but I'm, what I'm doing is quarterly fasting. And just for a few days of water fasting, followed by about three days of ketogenic diet, keep myself in ketosis for a week, four times a year. That's kind of my long-term plan to, you know, I'm sure uh, you've been talking to your people about autophagy and the kind of way you can reboot the immune system when you, when you do this fasting. And I, you know, as primarily a vegetarian, I looked at ketogenic diet and I thought, there's no way I can do this long-term. And I didn't want to. And I, and I felt like there's so much prana and vegetables and healthy whole grains that I wasn't willing to give that up. And so I, so this was kind of my compromise. My gut feeling is that the fasting is actually more important than the ketosis, that the ketosis is a marker of the many things that are happening when you fast. And it's not just about ketosis. 
Yeah, well, you get autophagy, you get stem cell activation, which is all of that comes from, you know, giving your body a break from having to digest. All the energy goes, goes elsewhere. You called yourself um, a Gigan for a while, <laughs> and then you also ended up being sort of a, a vegan keto. And I'm actually interviewing David Perlmutter again for the second time tomorrow, uh, and I'm going to talk about, you know, the issues with ketogenesis and all that. Right, but the right. point, the point is, is that I really feel like, you know, when you, when you really look at the science, eating a higher plant-based diet that's high in fat right, right. while intermittent, and then also having a seasonal approach to that, and also having periods of famine, that seems to be where you ended up. Is that accurate? That is absolutely where I ended up. I, I occasionally eat fish. Um, yeah. But, but I'm primarily uh, a vegetarian, I, I, but I, I now am back to, so I eat a ton of ghee, and, I, and you know, when I was in India, and, and first really learning about the metabolic theory of cancer and ketogenic diets and stuff, you know, there's no way to be in India staying in a vegetarian household and eat low carb. It cannot be done. So what I ended up doing was having a handful of walnuts or almonds every morning before I went down and then just dolloping ghee onto every meal they served me. So I figure at least we're going to slow the absorption of sugar, keep the insulin spike down a bit. So that was my approach. And, you yeah. know, basically I'm still eating high vegetable, high fat diet. So that's absolutely what I'm doing. Some yeah. grains, not as many as I used to have but not cutting them out entirely. He wasn't willing to do that. Yeah, I, I'm 100% I'm with you. I thought that was really funny because I, I, I've been investigating diets pretty aggressively in the last you know, six months, went on a vegan diet for three months and keto for three months, just you know, experimenting, trying to understand the ancient wisdom of longevity. Like I think some of your research came from you know, Walter Longo and the longevity diet, the fasting mimicking yeah. diet, brilliant work. work. Uh, you know, research about using, you know, uh, you know, fasting as a way to support yourself. And ongoing, I think what you're doing is just brilliant. So what you said you're doing is you're doing a quarterly, a 72-hour water fast followed by five days of the fasting mimicking uh, kind of diet? Well, I, I'm doing four days of, of pure water fasting. I think it, okay. last time I think it was 111 hours or something like water fasting. Yeah. And then I follow that with three days of just ketogenic and and then i just and then the rest of the time i'm just back to my usual diet so what does that so, ketogenic look like what, what are you eating in those in those days of ketogenic just a ton of ghee i'm <laughs> definitely in a ton of ghee but i pretty much eat a ton of ghee every day so right. um you know i would have things like i would take um really good yogurt or kefir and i would strain it um to remove all the the whey and, I would, and then I would put a bunch of nuts and coconut and a little bit of cacao powder and, you know, maybe some, a little bit of blueberries or pomegranate seeds. So, you know, that might be a breakfast. I might, I might have an omelet with avocado. I might, I, uh, I make uh, Thai, uh, like coconut curry soup. And then instead of using regular noodles, I cook spaghetti squash 
and use the spaghetti squash for the new ones. So I just various ways of just finding a way to, you know, get a little bit of protein, but not too much, cut way back on the carbs and just throw on as much fat as I can take. So why, the, why get rid of the whey? The whey is an easier protein for us to digest than the casein. So why, why go that route by draining the yogurt? Um, my understanding was that it also lowered some of the carb le level. And, oh. and, 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 and I, don't, I don't know if that's accurate. I wouldn't swear by it, but that was just something I had read. Uh, okay. The other thing was that with a ketogenic diet, you have to be careful with protein. Because you get too much protein, that can... Yeah because of gluconeogenesis, the extra protein can also get turned into sugar. Right. And so I was trying to avoid that. And, you know, some of the things I was eating, like eggs and nuts and things, have some protein, and I was just trying to keep the total down. Yeah, it's, it's insulinogenic, and you don't want to, you want to inhibit mTOR as much as you possibly can. So too much protein can act just like sugar in the body. And if you're looking to keep sugar down because cancer cells love sugar, right, then you want to definitely limit the amount of protein. And we should all be limiting the amount of protein, which I love when you look at the longevity diets, uh, people who live to be the longest on the planet, the Ayurvedic diets. It's a 90 to 95% plant-based diet with 5 to 10% animal protein. And, you know, vegan diets, as wonderful as they are, the only diet we know that literally can cure heart disease you couldn't eat a vegan diet without having some sort of supplementation to be healthy. You need your B12, you need your omega-3s, and that 5 to 10% animal protein, whether it be cultured dairy in Ayurveda or fish in pesky, like longevity, the most of the centenarians do fish, like you're doing. I do a little bit of fish to get that. Not much, a couple of servings a week is all you need to make that happen, but the rest of that should be mostly plant-based. And uh, I feel like, you know, I feel like that, um, uh, we ended up pretty much in the same place in that regard, I right. think. Right. Um, okay. One of the things you talked about, which I love, was nose breathing yes. and yes. using <laughs> chanting and the Brahmari Pranayam and the vibration that you use. Talk to us about that discovery. Well, you know, before I did yoga, I was a mouth breather. I, I have a deviated septum uh, from an injury as a kid, a different injury. I got a few of them. Um, I had, when I started yoga, fairly prominent uh, uh, hay fever, and so congestion in my nasal passages. So it was tough for me to breathe through my nose, particularly tough at night, I think. So I was a mouth breather. And... You know, when I started practicing yoga, um, it started to get better because, of course, you breathe through your nose in yoga classes, and I learned that. And the other thing I discovered, you know, when I first started doing alternate nostril breathing, which is another super valuable technique I found along the way, I could barely bring air in through one of my nostrils because of the deviated septum. But, you know, in yoga, they teach that the prana follows the chitta, that the energy follows the mind. And so I started doing this practice of mental alternate nostril breathing, where I simply imagine the breath coming in the left nostril, going out the right, coming in the right, going out the left, and do that repeatedly. And the thing was that just by doing that, more breath started going through the blocked nostril. 
Now, precisely how that happened, I don't know. But all I can say is that slowly over time, I started to be able to bring more and more breath through that blocked nostril. It's, they're still not even, but they're way closer to even. So that, that was crucial. And then what happened, I think, from practicing yoga was that just this habit that initially started on the yoga mat started taking over in my life. I estimate that my respiratory rate was probably 20 breaths a minute before I started yoga, which is considered the high end of normal in medicine, considered abnormal in yoga. It's too high, right? After a couple of years of practicing yoga, I noticed that my baseline breath rate became about six nasal breaths per minute, which of course is calming to the nervous system. When the nervous system calms, the mind calms. So that was beginning to be my journey back from this very twitchy nervous system that I had for almost all my life to one that's much more grounded and centered now than, than it ever was before. Now, in terms of the vibration, again, this was just my, my theory, and maybe this had something to do with the lymphedema too. I felt like that vibration of all the tissues, and of course, by using different pitches and volumes and through just uh, in setting the intention, I could direct the vibrations, the sound waves, to different areas of my nasal pharynx. Uh, you know, low pitch sounds tended to go more in the neck, higher pitch sounds more in the nasal passages. So I could move the vibration around, cause vibration, which I think probably helped with lymphatic flow, probably helped, um, who knows, maybe helping immune systems find those lingering cancer cells. We'll never know. But uh, in a course, I'm also chanting mantras like the Gayatri Mantra and the Mahamritunjaya Mantra and the Victory Over Death Mantra that are said in the Vedas to be profoundly healing mantras. And so I'm doing these mantras that are themselves said to have healing properties and I'm using the literal sound vibrations these mantras cause. And, and the Brahmari has always been my favorite pranayama. I just love it. Make the sound of buzzing bees, and I actually do Brahmari before I chant because I find that the Brahmari wakes up my sensitivity to the subtle vibratory effects of chanting. And it feels like the practice of chanting is deeper after Brahmari. So, yeah. And, and Brahmari pranayama is a, is a humming pranayama for those of you who don't know. And, and uh, I've been, obviously, you know, my first book, Body, Mind, Support, was about nose breathing research. We compared nose breathing yeah. to mouth breathing. And um, recently I've been doing a little more research and I found that when you hum, there's science that shows that it increases the production of nitric oxide by tenfold. Now, we also have science to show that nitric oxide, which was Nobel Prize winning molecule, I think in 1998 in chemistry, the panacea molecule, it's produced in your nasal sinuses, not in your mouth. So when you mouth breathe, you don't get any. When you nose breathe, you get a ton. And when you breathe through your nose, all that nitric oxide gets pulled right down into the lower lobes of your lungs, exchanges through your alve alveoli into your blood. And the hallmark of nitric oxide benefit is to repair the endothelium 
of your arterial wall and your arterial lining or the sensitive tissues or the sensitive skin of your body. It's anti-inflammatory and, and it was just quite phenomenal. So I was, so then I was like, oh my God, here's a study that shows that Brahmari, you know, pranayama or humming or chanting increases the production of that nitric oxide 10 times because nasal breathing is enough, is, is, is plenty because we do that 26,000 times a day if you do it through your mouth and nose. But man, what you stumbled upon, I was like, oh wow, that is so cool. Because look at the research that backs up what you found and, 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 and the, 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 the mindfulness that you did it with, I think is maybe uncharted research territory, but very profound. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, and, and I absolutely agree. You know, I think probably what's happening is that Bromery is opening up the ostia, the little openings to the sinuses and then liberating the nitric oxide that's sitting there and then bringing it into the general circulation, as right. you're suggesting. Right. So, so. And, and when you talked about some of the side effects of this whole thing in your tonsils was, you know, sort of dry mouth syndrome, I couldn't help but thinking about more research that I recently wrote about, which is, you know, taping your mouth closed at night, forcing right. you to breathe through your nose and bring that nitric oxide in, and also making sure that you don't change with, as being a night mouth breather change the bacterial you know environment of your mouth which happens when you sleep and every sleep apnea device snoring device is designed to make you close your mouth and breathe through your nose and all you got to do is get some tape there's a company out there that i actually i don't make any money on it or anything but there's one company on amazon you can get it. it's called somnifix it's special mouth tape you put it has a little hole in it in case you have to <gasps> suffocate and you just tape it over and you can slowly train yourself to be a nose breather while you sleep. That's eight solid hours of solid nose breathing. And the benefits are uh, off the charts in terms of, you know, the, the science that's been done on nose versus mouth breathing and while you sleep. And now with the nitric oxide being taken into your lungs and doing the healing and repairing at night, I mean, it's just something that everybody should be doing. But I thought for you, it might be great. You're probably already doing it um, to to help with the dry mouth issue that that happened after the the chemo. Is that all better now? Well, you know, and, and actually, it was. I think what happened was that when I started yoga, like almost 25 years ago, I was a mouth breather. But by the time I was dealing with my cancer, I was full-time nasal breather, including at night. So I didn't. I didn't worry about that. I didn't feel like I needed to change it because I know, but I'm sure it helped me enormously because dry mouth is the very first side effect that comes from the renation therapy it can come within days of starting. And um, I didn't have that big a problem and I have less salivary flow than I used to, but it's still pretty good and I'm still doing, you know, full-time nasal breathing. By the way, inhaling and exhaling through the nose, because when you exhale through the nose, the nasal mucosa retains some of the liquid. So it humidifies the air coming in and it dehumidifies the air going out, keeping everything moisture. Hmm. Yeah, beautiful. I think the science behind that is so critical. I think it was the, the Shiva Samhita who talked about, you know, you were limited, our lifespan is limited by a certain number of breaths. And if you're if you're breathing six breaths per minute and the average person is breathing 18 or 20, um, you're way ahead of the curve there, Timothy. Well, and, and, and the practice that I did that I think actually ended up being crucial 
because I, I kind of got into this and I got into some of the classical Hatha Yoga stuff during my last trip to India. But I started doing alternate nostril breathing. Inhale for 16 seconds, hold for 16 seconds, exhale for 16 seconds, hold for 16 seconds. In other words, wow. less than one breath per minute. I would do that, I do that for 12 to 18 minutes every morning. That was a total reset for my nervous system. And by the way, your book, Body, Mind, Sport, completely changed the way I exercised when I read it how many years ago, I don't even know. Right. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I really started doing was, as you suggest, nasal breathing, although I do it in and out, as I, as I suggested. But after I started doing that one breath per minute pranayama stuff, I noticed that when I work out now, I can go as hard as I want. Heart rate, really high. Breath rate, never above six or seven breaths per minute, even with vigorous exercise. Wow, I wish I knew you when I wrote my book. I could have used you as the testimonial. I love that. I mean, that was the whole point. That's the whole point of that whole book was getting the body to be dynamically active, yet calm at the same time, that coexistence of opposites, which is that kind of Vedic mandate for optimal health and full human potential, right? And you were doing that, and you're still doing that, even, you know, not only in exercise, but one breath per minute at rest, six breaths per minute during the day. I mean, that is a mastery, absolutely a mastery. For most people, you gotta, people should just try that, one breath per minute. Good luck. I mean, so, well, you know, here, here, here's the thing. I've had a daily practice of pranayama for 18 years. So I worked very slowly up to that one breath per minute stuff. And, right. you know, people want to try one breath per minute for one breath, you know, knock yourself out. But unless you've trained for it, do not do this at home because it's potentially dangerous, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and which just really, you know, goes to show how, how valuable, you know, and it's something that we've lost in our culture these days is, Everybody wants everything like that, instant, quick. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Nobody wants to spend the time to, to really develop a skill or a skill set or dig in deep or dig one hole really, really deep or spend the time to master a skill, you know, or, 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 or the ability to really go within. Um, everybody is, we're getting all this stimulation from the outside. We become so rajastic as a culture and where yoga was like, guys are missing the boat, the, 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 you know, the lion's share of our joy and contentment and human potential lies on the other side of that equation, which is to go within. Which leads me to this discussion about, you know, how as a young child, physical trauma, possible some scars from your parents, you know, you know, but also your dad, you know, being pretty critical of you a lot of the time. Um, you, we all armor up, and that armor allows us to create a personality to feel safe and secure. So you created the Timothy McCall medical doctor that was projecting on the screen something that made you feel safe and secure. My take on, on cancer is you gotta take that armor off and let the delicate petal, petals of that flower open and let something reel out for us to really finish the job of healing and open the door to a life of of uh, of expo explore exploration into the, the magic of this human condition that we that we are, um, but I, I so I'd love to if you don't mind sharing a little bit of that journey 
that you, because I know you must have done some, a lot of emotional work along the way here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I had, you know, you talked about my father and, and my father was kind of more flamboyantly a weirdo and, and, um, uh, and brilliant, you know, and, and had, had many qualities, but he was perhaps the most hypercritical person I've ever met in my life. Um, I, I used the phrase in the book, uh, you know, from whom seldom was heard an encouraging word, you know, uh, you know, so, but on some deeper level, my mother was actually quietly much more problematic than my father. She oh, just wow. very emotionally blocked off. And I don't really think capable of empathy. I think she had a real tough time understanding the child in front of her and what that child needed. I just think that was very tough for her. So my emotional upbringing was pretty rough, pretty rough start. Uh, you know, my mother almost died in childbirth. Uh, you know, when I got home after the month in the incubator, we'd had zero chance to bond. She had escaped with her life through the ordeal. Uh, so I think it was hard for her too. So I think it was just a tough situation that I went home from. Plus, you know, shut, emotionally shut down Irish Catholic family where nobody ever talked about what's like really going on emotionally here, unless it was anger. They're quite good about talking about what they're mad about. But all the other emotions, uh, not really ever, they, they never went there. And, you know, in a situation where there wasn't a lot of affection, where there wasn't a lot of encouragement, I think I learned early on to substitute getting attention, achieving something, saying something clever. Like these were the ways that I could get some kind of positive feedback as a substitute for love and something deeper. And it was only, you know, years into my yoga practice as, you know, with, a, you know, so we often talk about the physiological benefits of meditation. But one of the benefits that comes from a sustained practice is that slowly over time, stuff from your inside starts bubbling up. And I started to see stuff about myself, including stuff about myself I didn't like. And I realized that really I'd kind of been seeking attention and blocking real love because I don't think I even knew what it was for most of my life. And so I went through this process, particularly, you know, starting about 10 years ago when I really started to grok what having the parents I had and how I needed to adapt to get through that, how that left me with certain residuals and certain behaviors that no longer served me and I didn't want anymore. So I set about this process of trying to open up my heart, of trying to open it up not just from love flowing out of me, but the part I don't think I realized until later, I was also blocking it coming into me from others. I was blocking it both ways. And so I started doing bhakti yoga practices. And you know, I had an interesting conversation with David Frawley about 10 years ago when I first started to really understand what probably 
was the residual of my childhood. Because at first I had to just understand it intellectually. And he said to me, even atheists can do bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. So to this day, I worship, I pray to, I say mantras to an eight-armed Indian goddess who I don't believe ever really existed, except in people's minds. But I've done that, and it's been really effective. And as you said, slowly, slowly over time, it's really changed things. It's really helped me heal a lot of that emotional wounding and open up to that more beautiful life that you were alluding to. So that's really been what's happened. So in the, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, they talk about, uh, one of my favorite quotes is um, yoga style Kuru Kamani, where it means establish being and then perform action, where they're on the battlefield and, our, and Krishna and Arjuna were racing to fight their cousins, their family members. And uh, Arjuna had a little moment of pause and said, hey, I played hopscotch with these guys. I don't want to go kill them. This is crazy. And Krishna, who was his sort of spiritual leader, said, first you must establish being your truth, and then you from action from that place. So in our world today, we have, you know, everybody, and this is what we call in Ayurveda, Dhanurveda. Dhanurveda is the, the Veda of the bow, pulling back the bow holding it perfectly still, when you shoot from that place of perfect silence, it's a transformational karmic action. And, but if you're moving this thing around, we have no idea where the arrow is going to go. It makes no change. So the whole point, from my perspective of Ayurveda yoga, breathing meditation, was to pull back the bow, yes, become perfectly still, more self-aware, and you are, you are an exemplary, you're an example of that because you've been doing this practice for so long having deep awareness of yourself and your non-self, the version of you you had to create to protect yourself, all the armor. But then you took action and you released the arrow from that place of deep calm, which means coming from that place that's you, not the reje reaction and the rejection and the judgment and the needing love. It's the being of the love, letting those petals of the flower open so you feel safe enough, vulnerable enough, and willing to let something more delicate and vulnerable out. So that had to go in the direction, I would imagine, to your mom and your dad and some of these family members that were a little wonky along the way. So I'm, I'm curious, did, did you find yourself in, engaging in that action, in action steps like that? Because from my perspective, and I could be wrong, I feel like there's, the equation is established being, become self-aware, and then you must take action. Meditation is not enough. You have to act on it. You have to, you can't just pull back the bow and then walk away. You gotta shoot the thing. But nobody does that. Everybody seems to get into yoga, meditate, breathe, but then they go lie, cheat, and steal in their life. And it's not enough. We have a culture more needing the action side of that equation more than ever before, I believe. And I and I'm and I just wonder and I don't know the answer to this. I'm just curious in your healing, did you find that it did require you to take tangible action steps to really free yourself from those old patterns, or did they just dissolve away? I do not think they just dissolve away. And, 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 you know, I think there are two ways you can use yoga when you're suffering. One is to do it enough that you feel good enough that you don't have to do anything. 
And the other way is to use it to have the strength to do things that are hard, that can repattern your habit patterns, repattern your thought patterns, repattern you know, your behaviors of thought, word, and deed, so that actually you can create different karma going forward. And, and that's truly the spiritual path. Go, being willing to look at the parts of yourself that you're ashamed of and to learn to have compassion for those parts of yourself and learn to love them, learn to understand how they developed in response to whatever karma you were born into. And that, and, and that you develop these habit patterns, but they aren't, as you said, who you truly are. And, and then if, if, if the habit patterns you have do not serve you in some deeper way, take the kind of brave step to take the steps against the grain of habit, because it's really easy to live your life on automatic pilot. Just do whatever feels like the thing you want to do in that moment. But instead to say, no, that's the old habit pattern where it's head. I don't want to do that. You know, this is what I'm going to do instead. Uh, you know, the, the Buddhists talk about when you meditate, you start to be able to notice the spark before the flame. So you might, someone said something to you that might make you mad and you got just an extra split second to say, you know what, I don't need to react to this. Or maybe there's a more skillful way to react to this. So, yeah, I mean, I think I had to do a lot of stuff. And I'll tell you something, just on a basic physical level, undoing the hyperkyphosis of my thoracic spine and learning how to stand up straight it's been really hard just to do simple backbends to actually get into that area and open it up. has been really hard. And some of the body work and stuff I did and some of the Ayurvedic treatments, it's not just like going to a spa and getting like a soothing massage. It's challenging to go through some of the treatments I went through. They're life-changing, but they require you to be willing to do stuff that in the short term is difficult in order to try to bring yourself greater freedom and well-being in the long term. Yeah, wow. I, I, I love that analogy, the spark before the flame. I, I just think that's so critical because we are, we are so reactive to judge and blame others. And then and we let all other people's dysfunctional behavior make us into something that we're not. We let other people, you know, control us in a way. We're reacting to their dysfunction. And when they change, I'll be happy or I'll be nice to them when they change. And uh, of course, they never change and we never get to experience who we truly are because we're in constant, you know, reward chemistry mentality. We're constantly feeding off how can I get what I need from the environment. Maybe it's from too much sugar in our diet from when we were little kids, but this culture is on steroids in terms of dopamine reward chemistry. And it changes the brain chemistry to just keep wanting more from the outside. And, and what you're saying is that, dude, that is a dangerous road to hoe. And when you go and you create deep levels of awareness, you have the level of clarity to see the old pattern of behavior, which you do the same dumb thing again and again and again, you know the result, or you get to see the spark before the flame. I love that. I call it responding to affliction with affection, being aware of, of oh, that just pushed my buttons. Now, 
you know, I have an opportunity because I pulled back the bow and I'm aware, I have the actual clarity to see what my mind is about to react to and with pause, take action from myself. And that means through, like you said, the window of compassion and understanding and not judging the other person. I just love, love, love that. I'm curious, you know, and then the other side of that is action steps. And maybe this might be, um, I'm digging a little bit too deep here, but, but you know, with regard to your mom and dad, you know, um, underneath those relationships, I know you love your mom and your dad, but there's, they're crazy, right? And so we have this, like, they're nuts, but I love them. Have you ever gotten to a place where you were able to kind of put the craziness aside, the things you don't love about them, and just only look at the parts that, and through the window of compassion and understanding that, hey, I get it why they were the way they were. And through that window, I can truly allow myself to love them and not judge them. Did you get to that place? Well, both of my parents had already died before I really embarked on on most of this deeper spiritual work. But I'll tell you something. My father died in, in, in 1990. Now, that was, that was five years before I started practicing asana. Now, as it turned out, I started practicing yoga 20 years before that, but I didn't know that because my first yoga teacher was actually a tennis teacher. I used to be a competitive tennis player. And I had a teacher, uh, so the stu- when the student was ready, the teacher appeared, and the teacher who appeared was a tennis teacher. And he turned me on to a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Now, the inner game of tennis has been called Zen Tennis. Sure. And I went and reread that book five years ago because I remember it changed my life, not just my tennis game, which it revolutionized, but changed my whole life. And I went back and reread it and I went, oh my God, this is a yoga book. You know, they never use the word yoga anywhere in the whole book, but everything that's in that book is the exact same methodology for changing yourself that I teach in my yoga medicine seminars to this day. It's the same methodology. Identify the habit pattern, decide if it serves you or not. If it doesn't serve you, figure out a way to repattern a different pattern that does serve you, and then repeat that pattern again and again and again until it becomes so strong in your neural architecture that it starts to ease the other have a pattern to the side. Mm. So that's the methodology of the inner game of tennis. That's the methodology of yoga therapy. And I think that's the methodology of serious spiritual work. First, you got to see it. You got to own it. You don't have to admit it to anyone else, but you got to be aware. Right. And then, and, and you know what, in the moment you own it, you may not be willing to deal with it. Right. But owning it is still the first step. Right. And then it's planting the seed that may sprout into the point where, where you are able to take the first steps to starting to change that. To, to take the action. And then what you said also I love is that, you know, like I can see, I didn't read that book. I should. I want to. I will. Um, that, you know, yes, you have a lousy serve, right? You have to do repetitive correction to that form to create neural pathways so then that serve has four lanes with lights on it that you drive down that serve every time and don't even think about it right so that in your life means random acts of kindness 
finding out what it is that you truly love about a person or care about, what's your truth, and take random acts of kindness, not in the heat of battle, start laying down some neural pavement, give, love, care, take care of others, oxytocin-based, telomere, lengthening-based, epigenetic support, pro-microbial, beneficial, giving, loving, kindness, joyful things you do every day, so then you can see the spark before the flame. Then, only then, when you see the reaction, you can then say to yourself, oh, there's door number one and there's door number two. I now see I have a choice. And then you can right. take action. Isn't, isn't that what you're saying? Absolutely. You know, there are, there are two Sanskrit words that are sometimes used, Shreya and Preya. And Preya is what feels good and what's comfortable. And Shreya is what's good for us. And at any moment, we have these choices. Here's the thing that's comfortable and familiar and maybe not so good for me. Like, let's go back and check Facebook one more time before I go to bed. Not good for us, but we kind of like it on some level versus the thing that's actually good for us, which is to turn off all the screens for a couple of hours before we go to bed. And so every day we have, you know, that's just a little example of the kind of choice that we face again and again in our life. And so much of the spiritual path is willing to defer gratification and do something. Because you know what? Getting up and doing yoga is a little bit of a pain in the butt every day. Okay? And you got to be willing to do that little bit of, undergo that little bit of discomfort to get this like greater benefit in your life for the long term. But right now, you got to pay me first. And then you get the benefit, we hope, sometimes later. Yeah, I love this. I really, I, you know, this is the part of Vedic knowledge that I truly love is that, you know, I really believe what we're really here to do is, you know, uh, I was listening to an interview with Dean Ornish recently and, and uh, he said something really beautiful, I thought, which was that this joy and this bliss that we all seek, it isn't something you have to go get. It's inside all of us. All we're doing is just uncovering it because it, it's there. You don't have to go get that. You know, but we do a really good job of armoring it up and protecting it. Once you realize you've armored it up, you know, then the fun part, I call it the game of life, not the Mahabharata, great battle, people die. Not like that. It's a game. We can play with this journey and slowly but surely but consistently take off that armor and let something beautiful out. And uh, I must say that you have done that. You've really let something beautiful out. And I, and I, can't, um, I, can't, uh, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate the journey and that you're willing to share it and how important it is for you to continue to share it because um, people need to hear this message, particularly this part. I mean, all the pieces of the puzzle, the, the fasting, the acupuncture, the, the, the hyperthermic chambers and everything that you did that we didn't even get into today, all the crazy stuff. I love it. It's great. But at the end of the day, that gets you the ability to pull back the bow, be aware and make that deep change that we're all looking for and we'll never be satisfied until we get it. Um, last word for you. Tell, you know, tell us where we can get a hold of you if need be and also... Um, you know, tell us about, tell us when the book, give us more information about the book and how to get it. Yeah. So, so the book is already out on uh, Kindle and Amazon all over the world. Came out January 1st, 2019. 
the hardcover, which will be a full color hardcover, which will include a whole bunch of photos I took in India. That'll be coming out May 2nd, 2019. And, and uh, you know, you can find me, uh, I'm on the internet at drmccall, D-R-M-C-C-A-L-L.com. And, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can find me on Facebook. Although, until this last week since the book came out, I mostly just pretend to be on Facebook. I don't really actually spend any time there. It's been a little bit different the last few days now that I got a new book out. But you can find me there. And, and you know, I teach you know, workshops, yoga medicine workshops all over the world. About to head off to Australia and New Zealand in a couple of weeks. First time in both countries. Very excited about that. And then, of course, stopping in Kerala for some more treatment on the way home. Really excited about that. Well, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on your journey. Keep doing the work. Uh, keep keep sharing the love. Uh, it's a it's just a good play. Great. It's just I'm so honored to have this conversation and hear this story. And uh, I can't wait to give you a hug next time I see you. So uh, um, thank you. This was this was a real pleasure and, and such and such a nice conversation. Really really value it. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Good luck to you. We'll talk soon. Great. Bye bye.